Um, here's like a summary of the book of Romans. We went through this a few times as we walked through different chapters. But chapter one is about um, Paul speaking, like pointing to all these people, right? And saying the wrath of God is going to be poured out on them. That the earth is filled with wickedness. People aren't seeking God. And that, um, you know, whether they are adulterers or God-haters or disobedient to their parent or slanderers, that they're going to be separated from God. And in chapter 2, we see the church that he's writing to kind of pointing the finger at all these people and saying, that's not us, that's them. All of them are going to be judged. All of them aren't worthy to be um, in heaven. And then Paul turns the table and he's like, that's not just them, that's all of us. Like all of us are under the judgment of God. None of us are worthy to, to go to heaven. And so he turns the table and he says, all of you who are teaching people not to rob temples or lie or do evil things, you yourself are doing it. And so he kind of puts everyone on the equal playing field. No one is good enough. No one in, in their own moral code can reach heaven, right? And, and the way that he does that is he's saying, if you have a moral code, and you like judge other people by your moral code, but you stop and examine your life deep enough, you'll realize that you can't even keep the moral code that you've set up. That your own moral code is, condemns you. And, and that's not even to the moral code that God has, right? God's moral code is perfection. His moral code is if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. If you hate someone, you've committed murder. So he really puts us all on an equal playing field. Uh, whether it's Mother Teresa or, or a murderer, he said we're all, uh, we all fall short of God's glory, that all of us have sinned, that all of us deserve death and judgment. And that's really what um, the end of chapter 2 is about, right? That we're all Daryl in Negan's um, (laughs) jail. Uh, We all deserve to be separated from God. And uh, Walking Dead, yes, my favorite, favorite. Anyways, um, and I think from there, most um, secular or religious uh, systems kind of start us off there, right? And then they say, but if you do enough good, if you work hard enough, if you adopt enough orphans or pet enough puppies and help old ladies cross the street, you can outweigh the evil that you do with good and make it into heaven, right? You can earn your way to salvation. But this is where the Christian faith stands in deep uh, divide with other religions because we're saying that we can't earn our way to God. We can't do enough good for him to accept us, that we are all reliant on Jesus, on the cross, that on the cross, he forgives us of our sin and he brings us into his family. And that's the, that's the Christian symbol, that this God loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us, to forgive us. And then, of course, the cartoon is Abraham, as you can tell, because beard and tunic, and um, uh, bald, right? And uh, so what Paul does is he not only moves us to focus on Christ and his death and resurrection, but he addresses the whole Jewish faith. He goes back to their founder, and he says, Abraham, this person you built your whole faith off of was actually someone 
who relied on God for salvation through faith, not through his own works. And so he disrupts the whole Jewish mentality that you can like do enough good to get to heaven, do enough religious rituals, follow enough laws to get to heaven. And he says, actually, the founder of your faith was not about doing good to get to heaven. The founder of your faith was about his righteousness coming from belief in God. And so he's disrupting all of his Jewish uh, readers by saying that their pioneer was about the cross as well, was about relying on Jesus for salvation. And then in chapter 6, um, 5 and 6, we have kind of salvation being fleshed out in the death and resurrection of Christ. In chapter seven, uh, sorry, chapter 5, chapter 6 is about the sanctification process, that as we, we learn to live in Christ, learn to live free of sin, chapter 7 are these two diagonal lines kind of speaking about the conflict and how difficult it is to do this whole Christian thing, right? That he feels this tearing between his spirit and his flesh, that he wants to do good, but he can't do the good that he wants to do. And then chapter 8 is about um, the freedom that comes from the spirit and how because of the spirit, we're able to focus not on the conflict, not on the sin, but on Christ and on the spirit empowering us to live the Christian life that we want to live. And so today we are going to continue in Romans chapter 8. If you guys have your Bibles, you could turn there with me. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. And I'll, I'll read it first, and then we'll go section by section. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. It says, what then shall we say in response to these things? All of these things. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, generously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 36. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Next slide. So, I was supposed to do this before we, oh no, next slide. Oh no, next slide. And that's it. <laughs> Crap. Okay, so we're messed up. Um, let's see, we're going to go into two questions and I'm going to go back and, and help uh, fix that. So the first question is, we kind of do this thing at church where we break off into small groups and talk to each other and sometimes we pray for each other after the sermon. So if you guys could just find two or three people around you, make sure everyone's included. 
And the first question is, um, do you believe that you can lose your salvation? So once someone becomes a Christian, can they like become non-Christian? And the second question is, has there ever been a time where you felt separated from God? Okay, so if you guys could just go ahead, turn to the people around you and answer those two questions. Can you lose your salvation? And when was the last time you felt separated from God? All right, and then I'll be back. All right, thanks so much for sharing, everyone. <laughs> how many of you guys, all right, so how many of you guys believe you can lose your salvation after you become a Christian? Raise your hand. Let's see. Okay, how many people believe you cannot lose your salvation? Raise your hand. All right, so we're a little bit more reformed here. Um, that's Patrick's happy. Um, so we're going to answer this question. Um, okay, and then also, when have, has there been a time where you felt separated from God? Um, if you guys are willing to go ahead and share that uh, as much as you're... Ben just shook his head at me, like, no, I will not share. I've never been separate. Just like, this is a stupid question. Please move on. Um, anyone not wanting to shake their head at me? Okay, Justin. Thank you, sir. Uh, whatever you uh, artistically like to interpret it as. <laughs> no, okay, good, good. Similar to the head shake from Ben. Thank you. Anyone else want to share? I know, it's kind of an intimate question, right? Um, I have a pretty, I think this passage uh, is like the climax, uh, the crescendo of Romans 1 through 8. It, it really kind of speaks into, in a poetic way, Paul takes all of what he's saying and he makes it emotive and deeply personal. And he just wants, to, wants you to feel God's love. Like, he moves from this intellectual, lawyer-like argument to almost this poetic um, song and phrasing where he's just, like, pouring out his heart to you. And, and he just wants you to walk away knowing in the deepest possible way that God loves you and that you cannot be separated from his love. Um, and I just, like, his love is unconditional. Like, you don't have to do anything to be loved by God, you can't earn more of his love and you can't do anything to lose his love. And there's a part of me that just feels so inadequate trying to communicate that to each of you. Like, my words are going to fail no matter what I say. But I hope that somehow the Spirit would take his words and my limited expression of it to have you, this is my prayer, this has been my prayer the whole week that somehow when you walk away from the sermon, that the weight of God's love and the way that it would root and anchor into your soul would be extremely deep and unmovable. And that you would, you would understand that you're his kid and that being his kid is something you cannot lose. Like Liam cannot remove himself from my family, right? Baby Liam will always be my son. And I just can't imagine him ever not being my son. And God loves you so much more than I love Liam. And that he, and that there can be this amazing freedom when you believe and are anchored by 
being his daughter, being his child, being his son, if you can build your identity and build your hope and build your life around that, you'll be free. You will be free. And somehow, Paul's trying to say this, and I'm trying to say this, and I'm not sure. I know that it will be inadequate, but that's my prayer for you. That's my prayer that God would do that in your soul today. That's what I've been praying for the week. What then shall we say in response to these things? So Paul here poses three questions, and he answers them with this focus on Jesus. Because I think if we conceptualize our salvation and God's love for us in a way where we're to focus, my good and bad and failings and weakness and bipolarness is the focus, then it feels like his love is fragile and, and can waver. And so when, but when Paul speaks about whether we can be separated by his love, whether there's condemnation and what more God could do, he points to Jesus, this immovable um, person who is faithful and doesn't break his promises and true. And he says, you are in that. And so here God is saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? And he's not saying this like for your business or for you to date that girl or for you to win in sports. It's something much more important, he's saying, if God is for us, who can be against us when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to us finishing our walk with him and making it, to, making it home to heaven, that no one can come against us because God is for us. And he says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not along with him graciously give us all things? He's saying, man, for our salvation, for us to be in God's family, he sacrificed his son for us, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God loves us so much that he gave us his son. I mean, I don't think, I think we can always say we love someone, but proving it means sacrifice, right? And God sacrificed the most important part of him in order to say he loves us, in order for his love to penetrate into our hearts and to bring us home. I can say, Johnny, I love you. I really love you. I really care about you. But it's totally different to somehow sacrifice Liam for Johnny, my son Liam, right? And I wouldn't do it because I love Liam so much more than I love you. In fact, in fact, me and Nina were having a conversation like, if we could save a million babies, but we had to sacrifice Liam, would we do it? And immediately we said no. We would let all those babies die because we're looking at Liam and we just love him too much, right? But like, if I love Johnny so much that I'm willing to sacrifice Liam to save him, and then Johnny's like, can I also have a boba? I'm like, yeah. Can I also have your car? Okay, sure. Like, and that's what this passage is saying. Like, God loved us so much that he gave us his son. Anything else is like, oh, like, it doesn't, how does, how can we even doubt God providing for the rest of our Christian journey if he's already given us his son, right? Like, 
how can you ever doubt that God wouldn't give you what you need to sustain your faith if he's already given you his son? And when he gives us Jesus, there's this amazing phrase that happens 93 times. I don't think we really grasp it well. And it's this simple phrase where it says, in Christ. Because he's given us his son, we are in Christ. And that's how he finishes off um, this passage. Um, Nothing in all else, in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, God, that is in Christ our Lord. In the next slide, I just want to explain what in Christ means. So when we say in Christ, in the Greek, it's the, it means that we are in Christ, right? But in what category are we in Christ? Like physically or metaphorically or in terms of, I don't know, relationship? It's actually speaking of, that little phrase is speaking of something extremely profound. It's saying that we are in him when it comes to our covenant, his covenant with God. That in the beginning of time with Abraham and all the way through Israel's history, there's this covenant that God is building out for mankind that he's calling us into. He calls people into this covenant or this promise, uh, this relationship with him. But all the way through history, uh, Israel's history, he's, he gets really sad and angry and jealous because he commits himself to these people. These people commit themselves to him saying, we're going to follow you. You're going to be our God. You're going to be the only one we worship and love. But then they keep breaking it, right? They keep worshiping all these other idols and keep saying, okay, actually, you're not my first love. And I'm going to chase after money or this other God or prosperity, And we have never been able to keep our covenant with God. And I think we feel that. We feel that from day to day, that I sin against God, that I'm worshiping other things, that I'm actually focused on this woman or this man instead of God. But what it means to be in Christ is that we, instead of us relying on ourselves, on our will, on our good deeds to keep our covenant with God, our steadfastness, we're relying on Jesus to do that. You see, he comes and he takes the form of man because he's representing mankind. And when we are in him, he's representing us and he's saying, I will keep this covenant for you. I will keep this covenant on your behalf. I will live a sinless life. I will be Uh, focused on God and and follow him, and you will take the way that I live this life, and and you will be in my covenant as I keep it perfectly. And because he's able to keep it perfectly, and because our focus is on him, we don't have to worry about whether we're still a part of God's family or not, whether we're still saved or not, because it's not about us anymore anymore. It's about him keeping the covenant on our behalf. And he does it perfectly. He's perfect before the Father. And because we are in him, we are also perfect before the Father. Think about it in terms of sports, right? So like in the Olympics, uh, we have all these people representing the U.S. And if they win, like we win. But 
when they're, when they're racing or swimming, it's not like I'm actually contributing to their gold medal, right? Like they have earned it on their own talent and ability. I can sit at home and eat popcorn and chips, or I can cheer as loud as I can, but at the end of the day, they're the victor, and they carry me with them because they're representing me as uh, USA or as a Laker fan. Oh man, we've lost a lot. Um, <laughs> So they lose on our behalf as well. <laughs> and if you're like a hardcore sports fan, you feel the win of your team, right? When they win, you're like ecstatic. You're like wearing jerseys and putting up flags and being like, I won with him. Like we are one. I identify with this team. And when they lose, right, you go into minor depression. You cry. I was crying when Kobe tore his Achilles because my hero like has fallen, you know? And like, w there's this identity being in, in, in the Laker, uh, in the team of the Lakers. And um, that's what it's saying here. We are in Christ. He's the hero. He represents us and he's victorious. And when we think about our salvation, when we think about keeping our covenant or our promise with God, Paul's saying it's not about us, that it's about him. In the next slide, we see these, the next question, oh no, one more time, oh my gosh, please, please work, okay, next slide, next slide, oh, praise the Lord, <laughs> that is good, all right, who will bring any charge against those God has chosen, it is God who justifies, and then right here, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, rise from the dead, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So Paul kind of jumps in to the depths of our sin, to the places where we feel condemnation, to the places where we're saying, man, I would lose my salvation if this sin is taken into account, if this doubt is taken into account, if God took this moment of my life and pulled it in front of everyone no one would really believe that I'm Christian. I stand condemned. And I think that we all have those moments of condemnation, right? We all have those moments where we're like, wow, I was like the worst person possible right here. Or this part of my character or this, this great sin that I did should remove me from God because it's that evil, it's that grotesque. And I think about King David when he um, sleeps with his soldier's wife, Bathsheba. And he's trying to hide this, he's trying to build this conspiracy. So he invites the soldier back and he's like, okay, spend the night with your wife so that when she gets pregnant, you'll think it's yours instead of me cheating on you and her and sleeping with her. And he's such a loyal soldier that he refuses to even go home because all his fellow soldiers are in the battlefield. So he sleeps at the doorstep of David's palace. He's so loyal to David that he's not even willing to rest. And then David has him murdered. He sends him back into the front line and he tells his general, send everyone else to the most violent place of battle and have them all pull back so that this man's killed. And that's what happens. And, Dave, and God is a God who sees everything and brings justice to everything. He has his prophet approach David. David repents. He's disciplined. 
he repents, and in his repentance, he says something very profound, Psalm 51. He says, um, forgive me, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. He takes murder and adultery, he takes his worst sins, and he removes himself in the sense of forgiveness. He says, it's not about me. It's about bringing it to the Lord, right? So many times when I sin, I'm like, God, forgive me, and let me factor in myself. Like, I, God, forgive me, and I'll stop doing this, and I'll uh, adopt an orphan, and I'll pet puppies, and I'll, I, and I'll be a better person. But David simply puts his eyes on the Lord and, and surrenders his sin to the Lord and to his character and to his forgiveness. And I wonder if we've been able to take the worst parts of our lives and say, God, would you forgive me upon yourself? And I'm excluded from your forgiveness. My good works is excluded from your forgiveness. When Paul talks about condemnation, he looks solely and squarely upon Jesus that Jesus' death would be sufficient for forgiveness. I think when I try to add to God forgive me and all, and all do something, I'm, what I'm really saying is when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't enough. And I have to do something else. It's taken me so long to take my sin before the Lord and just say, God forgive me, period. God, I receive your forgiveness, period. God, your grace is enough, period. In this passage, we see that Jesus died so that God can justify us, right? That if we truly stand before the Lord and we say and we believe that he's forgiven us, who else can condemn us? What other voice what other person has the right to judge us when the great judge has forgiven us? And I wonder if we've walked in the freedom of that. Is there any sin that you're still holding on to? Is there any voice that you're allowing to still speak condemnation into your life? Here, Paul is saying, let that go. If you've asked for forgiveness from the Lord and the great judge the great God has forgiven you, then you are forgiven. Not only has God died for our sins, but he was raised to life. He lived this righteous life, perfect before the Father, and we, as we are in Christ, and God sees us in Christ, we not only has, have his covering in forgiveness, we have his righteousness as well. God, when he looks upon us, does not see our sin not only is our sin wiped away, he sees the righteousness of Christ covering us. When he sees us, he sees Jesus. And as we're walking through this life, Jesus is in the right hand of God, interceding for us, praying for us. You know, I think it took a long time for me to believe that I can stand before the Father righteous without shame and guilt. It took a long time for me to feel like when I stand before the Father 
even if I've just sinned, even if I'm sinning, or if I've just preached a great sermon and worshiping, that he sees me the same, that he loves me the same. And I, I want to gift you with that. I, want, I pray that in his love, you could just kind of walk to him and talk to him like a child before his father, before her dad. The last part of this passage is so powerful. It says, what can separate us from the love of God? Can we go to the next slide? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, how, why, why does it do that? What can separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The third question that Paul poses. For it is written, for your sake all day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any other powers, neither height nor death, depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think for me, so much of this passage is to help me discover God's love in times where I feel separated from it. Because I kind of grew up, you know, believing that if I'm a good Christian, if I read my Bible, if I worship, if I go to church, that I'm going to be close to his love. But if I make mistakes, if I stop going to Bible study, if I didn't pick up my Bible and do quiet time this morning, that I'll be separated from his love. You know, that in my sin, I would be separated from his love. But here we find that God's love is with us all the time, that nothing can separate us. And I think a big part of my Christian journey was saying, God, help me to discover your love in the hardest moments, like Paul does. He's actually writing an autobiography. You know, in um, 2 Corinthians 11.25, he chronicles all of his hardest times. And it's, it's almost this mirror of the passage right here. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 25, uh, verse, chapter 11, verse 25. He says, I've been, uh, three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was pelleted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a day and a night in the open sea. I've constantly been on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea. It's kind of like green eggs and ham, right? Like, how dogs, like you have green eggs and ham everywhere and Paul's been in danger everywhere. So he's writing like from his own life story how in the darkest times he still found God's love. And I wonder if God's love has only been in the good categories of your life, when you're a good Christian, when, when things are going well, and that you feel like God's love is separated from you in the harder times. You know, when I think about the hardest moments of my life, I think about being a kid and um, I would have these horrific asthma attacks where I'm grasping for air for hours and I'm just trying to get oxygen into my lungs. My mom and I just kind of reflect on that sometimes and she just says how she was so afraid that I would die. I mean, think about the fragility of of our life being kept in one breath. That when 
when one breath is over, we need another. And if that ever stopped, we would pass. And having an asthma attack, I was just grasping for air from one second to the next. And I remember just talking to God and saying, God, would you be here with me? And would you be close? And would you help me breathe? And I, and I still kind of hold on to those moments in my hardest times that God wasn't just running away, but he was with me. I remember um, being on the airplane and um, like I've been on lots of planes and you know, sometimes it dips and people get scared, but I'm like pretty fearless, right? So I'm on this airplane and it dips once. And I'm like, I'm, I'm cool. And it dips a second time and people like are scared. And I, but I'm like, all these people are wusses. I'll look at the, air, the flight attendants. If they're cool, then it's, everything's okay. But I look at this f flight attendant and she's like running down the hall, like down the aisle and like throwing on her seatbelt and yelling into the aircraft. I'm like, oh crap, we're kind of screwed. And then it dips one more time. But this time, like I feel my butt f like lift off the seat and people have lost their crap, right? They're like screaming. These really decent people in like first class are just screaming like they're on a roller coaster and crying a little bit. And the woman next to me just grabs my hand, right? And I remember thinking in that moment, I might die. And then my second thought is, I really believe in heaven. Like, I really believed it. And I don't know if I had been tested in that way. But I, I felt this sense of, like, if I die, his love will go from life into death with me. I think about my hardest times in sin. And I think for a long time, I just believed that sin would separate me from God's love. But as I wrestle with my sexual addiction, I find his love, I find my ability to f see his love being pulled closer and closer. And I remember uh, like a month or two ago, uh, someone was preaching and we were using my laptop and my porn blocker just kept coming up. You know, I'm sitting on the front row, I'm like, Damn it. Because <laughs> like, like Net Nanny came up like three times and my name is right under it. And um, I remember just sitting there and I, was, and I was like super embarrassed. But then I just felt like God saying, hey, like right here, even when you feel exposed, even when your sin is in front of everyone, I love you. And is that enough? Like, and I think for me, one of the first times I just felt, many, one of many first times, I just felt brought into his love, even when I felt ashamed. Have we found God in our worst sins? Because we're used to being parented where like when we sin, our parents yell at us, send us away, and shame us, you know, and I'll probably do this to Liam one day too, but somehow, us being separated by love in isolation is shame. We're supposed to like transform to be a better person, right? <laughs> somehow, like if, if my parent doesn't tell me they love, if my parent withhold their love from me and, and isolate me, that I'm supposed to become like this beautiful butterfly. And God does something totally different. 
He says, when you sin, instead of separating from you, I'm going to pull you closer. When you feel ashamed, instead of isolating you, I'm going to hold you. My love will not be separated from you. And in my love is where you transform. In my love is this freedom to say, I don't have to work to be his kid, but I just get to respond and be inspired by his love to be better. You know, that I'm so engrossed and astonished by the love of God that I just want to respond in love. And that's every romantic movie, right? That's a truth that we hold on to, that somehow love transforms us. And if we receive enough love, we will be made whole and we will respond in love. And that narrative in the most perfect form comes from the Father to us. He goes through every category of of separation. And he says, my love extends beyond that, right? Death nor life, God's love, God is beyond death. And he proves that by the resurrection of his son. He goes through physical dimensions, height nor depth. And he says, I'm everywhere. And so it doesn't matter where you are, I'm with you. And he goes through time and he says, present nor the future. And he says, time doesn't matter to me because I'm eternal. And then he goes through heavenly powers, angels and demons and earthly powers, all creation. And he covers every category and he says, my love is still with you. There's nothing that can separate you from my love. All you have to do is find it because it's already there. You know, I, I just think about Liam, and if someone wanted to take Liam away from me, right, like kidnap him, I would do absolutely, and every parent knows this, right? You wouldn't bat an eye. If you're a parent, you would do everything in your power to stop that from happening, right? I would literally lay down my life. Like, they would have to go over my dead body or knocked out body <laughs> in order to take my son from me because I would take this chair and bash it over their heads, right? I would use this as a, you know, everything, anything I had in my power, I would stop that from happening. But I, I'm limited, and at the end of the day, if someone had a gun and killed me, they could probably take my son away. But I would have to be dead. And then we think about how much God loves us. More than I love my son. And God's saying that Nothing will take you away from me if you are in Christ. And even though Wilson could die and have his son taken away, I have all the power in the universe. And so nothing can touch you because God cannot be moved. His grip cannot be loosened. Nothing can overpower him. Um, man, I just really hope that you would know that you, if you believe in Jesus, if you've asked him to forgive you of your sin, if you ask the Father to bring you into his family, that you are his precious son and daughter, and that you would live in great security there, right? That you don't have to try to be his kid anymore. You just are. And you get to rest in that, and you get to operate out of that. 
and you get to kind of just like dance being in Christ, and there would be security there. You know, I think about what it's like to have a life being built in Christ, that if nothing else were to define us, not our success or our failures, not us being a parent or an employee, but we are simply in Christ, I just think there's an, a massive security that comes from that. There's this really, there's this Christian from a long time ago, Saisotin, and he appeared before a Roman emperor who was persecuting him for his faith. And he told him, if you are Christian, I'm going to remove you from this country. I'm going to banish you. And this Christian said, you cannot banish me for this world is my father's home. And this emperor said, I will kill you. I will slay you. And he said, you cannot take my life because my life is hid with Christ in God. The emperor, emperor said, I will take away your wealth. And he says, you cannot for my treasure is in heaven and my heart, there is as, and my heart is there as well. This emperor said, I will drive you away so that you will have no friends and be left utterly alone and this Christian said, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven for whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to hurt me. When Paul says we are more than conquerors, he's saying that if everything in your life is built around you being loved by God and you being his kid, then your foundation is firm and unmovable. And that's my prayer for you. God, thank you for our time. Um, and I pray that this week, in our hardest moments, in our deepest sin, in our greatest trials, that we would find your love. That you would have removed the doubt that you would separate from us. You would remove the doubt that we can lose our salvation. Let that be, I pray that that wouldn't even be part of what we question if we have been forgiven and loved by you, but that we could just work immediately into, God, where are you here in, in this hardship? You know, for some of us, maybe we are questioning our salvation because we're trying to work for it. You know, and or or we feel like maybe we're saved because of our parents or because the th good things we've done. I hope that this morning our security and salvation will come simply because we believe Jesus forgave us and we have given our life to Him. That it's about Him, what He's done and not what we've done. So this morning, maybe. It's your first time saying, man, I want God to forgive me. And I want to give my life to him. And I want this love that can never be separated. Or maybe it's the 10th time that you desire this and want to live it out. But if that's you, I just want to lead you in a simple prayer, you know, to just say again that, God, you're the one that forgives me and you're the one that brings me home. So you could just pray this prayer uh, with me, and you could paraphrase it, but as long as it comes from your heart, I believe that he's going to bring you into his family.
and that you won't be able to be separated from his love ever again. All right, so you can pray this prayer with me. God, thank you for loving me. I know I've sinned. I've done evil. But I thank you for dying the cross for my sin. I receive your forgiveness. I give my life to you this morning. I give my life to you again. Brothers and sisters, when, when you doubt your salvation, when you doubt his love, don't look at your circumstance. Don't look at how far you've fallen or your sin. Look up at the cross one more time. Pray that prayer one more time. That's how I assure myself when I have any doubts. I don't look at me. I don't look at how good I am or how bad I am. I just look at the cross again. And I said, Jesus, I still believe you forgave me. I still believe you love me. And I want to be a part of your family. 